somewhat uh, already today is from 1 chapter 27 uh, where our church Bibles is on page 624 unless the Lord builds us the house its builders labor Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stands guards in vain. In vain you raise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hand of the warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of phlegm. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Psalm 127. Amen. So this is the middle psalm of the, a series that we're going through the Psalms of Ascent from Psalm 120 through to 134. And um, this is the only psalm of ascent that's ascribed to Solomon, Solomon who was King Solomon and the son of King David. But not only that, if you look hard enough, um, and if you read commentaries, uh, you will find that Solomon packs his name in this psalm. You know, sometimes you get artists who will do a, a large scene of say people and they will at times we know that they paint themselves into that. Solomon is like that, he's painted himself into this psalm. Now for those who like you know those word searches, diagonal up and down, you won't find it that way. There's no Bible code or anything like that going on here in Psalm 127. But you will see in verse 2, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves, to those he loves. Now, there's various ways in which that's translated in English, but it's always roughly the same. It could be to, to the beloved, to the one he loves, because it's the word Jedediah. And if you go, if I get a slide for this, I think I have. Why do I put this up? Andrew, can you put the first slide on, please? Hello. There we go, there's King Solomon, which is uh, an orthodox icon. And if, you don't need to do this, um, but in 2 Samuel 12, um, after David's uh, child had died uh, with Bathsheba, um, David uh, comforted his wife Bathsheba, then he went to her and made love to her after period of the war. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent work through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. It, it could be a, a more intimate name, it could be a royal name, whatever it may be. But uh, Solomon had a, a second name, and that was Jedediah, which means loved of God. And so here in verse 2, where it says, Again, you rise early and stay up late, toil for food to eat, for he grants sleep. To the beloved, to his beloved, to the one he loves. So I like that wee thing. It's really nothing about what I'm going to say today, really. But I just thought it was a cool wee thing uh, to pick out. Uh, as David was a, 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 sam, a samster, 
Solomon, who is known for his uh, proverbs, is also known in scripture to have written over a thousand songs, and this is one of the songs. So what motivates you? This is a question that's on my mind as I just bring out two main things I can see um, from Psalm 127. Again, a psalm that was sung by pilgrims at least three times a year, going to the temple in one form or another. Psalms that got them ready to worship. Psalms that spoke about the whole of life. They were in song form. It was a, mostly an oral tradition, so they knew it, and it helped them get ready for worship. And this question is before me, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What, what makes you go to work? What encourages you to care for your kids or to study at school? Is simply your motivation because you have to? Or is there something uh, just so natural about doing those things? What motivates you? Yet yeah, we get bills to pay, most of us. We've got great pensions. We've got bread to put at the table, we've got exams to take, we've got expectations of parents and all of that sort of stuff. But what's in your heart? What truly gets you going at the beginning of the day? Go tell a story about someone. Uh, me and Miranda had a lovely meal this week with Ben and Maddie, who uh, are marrying Ben and in July and there. And Ben is a, a gamekeeper or a gilly for Butters Estate. And, and Ben, um, when you talk to him, just his eyes light up when he talks about his, his work. And he talks about, uh, I say, so how many stags did you shoot today? Three stags. Because it was hard work for like heavy big boots. And so I had to get them on the truck and etc. Now they're hanging up. And he just goes into great detail why they have to hang up. Sorry if you've been <laughs> um, And so he just describes all the process of, of of hanging up, why you do that, bringing water, etc., etc., etc. And then he talks about um, uh, his, and his eyes are bright about catching crows. Now, I knew it was crows and there was rooks and there was jackdaws, but I really didn't know how he, this, uh, the difference between them until I talked to Ben, because he just, it's his life. And he talks about how he catches crows, because crows, especially at this time, are really bad for lambs. You can, make, you can work out why they're bad for lambs. But crows the farmers hate. So the things called crow traps, where other crows are, are in a trap and other crows come and go in and get trapped and they're either broody or they're aggressive. And so farmers all about here just now will be crow traps because they're trying to save their livelihood and crows are no good. But there's a difference between rooks. Rooks don't do that. And jackdaws, I always thought it was crows that flew about dusk outside your house over at one of the hotels. And there's hundreds of them, but it's not jackdaws. And I've learned all this exciting stuff because of Ben. Because his eyes are open and he says something like this and it's my work. <laughs> but it's not. It's his life. It's his joy. It's his hobby. It is just so exciting for him. And I, could, I, didn't, I didn't say this at the time. Lydia, don't say this to him. But when we arrived, I had the feeling that he had just came from one of his huts where he had something hung up and he just washed his hands or showered and he'd thrown on a shirt and he was just getting ready for the minister and his wife coming. But really, his heart was to be out there with his son even getting ready. That's what motivated him. And for me, it, it spoke so much to me that I thought I have to start Sunday morning just talking about Ben and how I can see what motivates him. 
But some people say this, I want to get all I can and then some. And I would say that would be greed that's talking there, greed as a motivation. And some people would say, I feel like a failure and I don't want to do what I think I'm saying. No, and I have to do what I think people want me to do. And that to me is guilt speaking. That's the motivation. I've got to do this. There's an expectation on me. And I don't feel good about myself. And then there's others who may say, perhaps today some will finally notice how absolutely brilliant I am. And I think that's pride talking. It might be a good self-esteem, but it could be potentially pride that's talking. So living with all of these motivations, apart from what I saw with Ben, is like chasing the wind. You know that thought of how it's just absolutely impossible to catch the wind. You put hundreds of effort into it. And that might be your motivation, but it's pointless, it's empty. It's a waste of effort and it's absolute vanity to think that you can catch the wind. And I think Psalm 127, for those pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, are reflecting on work and are reflecting on their household and are thinking about their motivation and where God is in all of that and the dangers of pursuing work and the household without God and the fullness of pursuing work as work is good and a household with God, with God at the very centre of that but why would they sing about work when they're on holiday? I've done a pilgrimage from Seville to Santiago de Compostela, 35 days, walking about 20 miles a day. And, and it wasn't work for me. No one knew I was a pastor because I would get people asking me all about hot potato questions. And I would get people blaming me for everything that the church has ever done wrong. So for three quarters of the way, I kept quiet that I was a pastor. Because I just wanted to be a pilgrim. And it was not work. And I processed work. I processed pastoring and pilgrimage. But it was a pilgrimage. And yet, these guys on their pilgrimage to worship reflected on work. And reflect, reflect, reflected on their household. And I think that's a good thing. Because we are meant to bring everything in worship to the Lord. They were reminding themselves that most of life is not spent in here. Most of life is not spent in our small groups. Most of life is not even spent adding on to that in our prayer triplets. Most of life is spent at work. And most of life is spent with those who you call family. And it is no different for us. <coughs> Each week, we do gather here when we can, by God's grace, to re-energize, to reorientate ourselves, to worship. But being a pilgrim involves much more, and we know that, than showing up on a Sunday. We are not Sunday Christians. The Christian pilgrimage encompasses everything. And I think that's what Solomon, who was flawed in many ways, is getting that here. He wants us to learn that life without God <coughs> is empty and with him is full.
the road. Turn with me to the first two verses. We're going to do this in three parts. What's the key word that I saw? And I definitely saw the word unless a number of times. But from verse 1 and 2, the key word that I see in here, and I'm sure all of us see in here, is vain. The word vain we see three times here in verses 1 and 2. And it reminds us that work without God, endeavour without God, is meaningless. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. So what is the significance of the word house? Is it David's dynasty as a household? You know the promise that God gave David? Is that what Solomon is speaking about here? And Lord, unless the Lord builds your dynasty, you labour in vain. Is it speaking of the temple? Because we know that David wasn't allowed to build the temple, but Solomon was given that privilege. Is Solomon thinking of the incredible, beautiful, magnificent temple? Unless the Lord builds the temple, it's labours, it's um, builders labour in vain. Is it speaking of a house full of children? Is it speaking of your household or my household? Is it speaking of family and noise? Unless the Lord is in the centre of that, then what you try and build is all in vain. Whether it's Solomon's house, David's house, the Lord's house, your house, whether it's my house, and if God isn't in it, I think the psalm uh, Solomon here is saying is empty. There is such an onus in us with what we put our hands to, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be in our household, children or no children. It needs the Lord to be involved in that because all the hard work that we put in is no substitute at all for the very presence of God. We intentionally begin a worship call to worship. It's not that we are saying, God, come, because this is holy ground, just as out there is holy ground, and wherever you go today is holy ground. So we are not doing some, as a call to worship, some potion, incantation, some voodoo to call God into our presence. No, it's for us to realise it is the leader, the pastor calling the church to worship, not God to come into our worship. So it's for us to get our minds right. And that is good because if we do anything, and, and I'm sure we've been at fault many times, but if we've done anything in here, not with the strength and power of the Holy Spirit and not with the desire of the Lord, we then we've been involved in meaningless activity. We've been going through the motions. And it's difficult times when it's your tradition, when it's your habit to come to church every week, to get yourself ready for church. Sometimes we rush, and sometimes we don't feel it coming, but it's a habit we come. There is such an onus for us to say, for this to be meaningful, I will settle my soul before the Lord and bring him warts and all. Because hard work, even coming here, is no substitute for God's presence. Unless the Lord watched over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. 
In the ancient world, they didn't have satellite and stuff, of course. They didn't have CCTV, of course. They had sentries. They had people whose job it was for the security of the city to watch. But, even with all of their vigilance and even with all of their alertness, there was no guarantee for safety unless the Lord was involved in that. We, we, some may have been, some may have looked in Google Maps that I have done at the Great Wall of China built to defend China against its enemies. It's over 4,000 miles long and over uh, 20 feet high and it's got a width that ranges from 12 to 40 feet. An impressive feat of engineering to keep China safe from its enemies, but it didn't stop the Mongols because uh, they uh, sacked in China and they got in. And how did they do it? They bribed the guards. History tells us that at times they bribed the watchmen who were not as vigilant, who were not sold in their role, and who did not stand guard and who took pieces of silver to allow the enemy to come in. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. However, please note that it doesn't say builders should build and the watchmen shouldn't watch. You may have a role within the church of being a builder, a builder of people, a builder of vision. You may be an enabler within the church family. The Lord says continue to do that. And you may see yourself as someone who generally keeps others right, who is rich in theology and experience by the grace of God and the great humility. Your role is to speak into situations and to guide situations and to develop disciples. Continue to build and continue to guard and be overseers. The Lord calls us to do that. But all depends on Him. It is His church and He is building His church. You belong to Him and He is building you up. You will be known as His disciples if you obey everything that Jesus commands by the grace of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in your life, not by hard, gritting teeth work. But the word vain here isn't the same as how Solomon would use it in, his, his, uh, in Ecclesiastes. You know what he says there? Um, he says, vanity of all vanities. All is vanity, meaningless, and all of that sort of stuff. So that's what he is, is speaking about there in Ecclesiastes. And there, what he means by that is that all the best stuff that life can offer apart from the Lord is empty. It won't fill you up. For all of the great things that people in the world, um, the, the, you know, the Elon Musk's have taken over Twitter and, and all of these guys, all of that of, is, is in the Lord's eye and the, the scheme of eternity is just vanity. Cannot take it uh, with you at all. But here, vain means that you can throw yourself into life without the Lord. And in the, in the end, you'll, you'll look at yourself in the mirror and you'll say something like, what was the point of all of that? There'll be a realisation, what was that all about? Why did I waste my time? 
There is a difference here with how Solomon uses this word vain. He is telling us that when we build, when we seek security, they are either the Lord's doing or they are ultimately pointless. And so, he says, uh, there it's a timely reminder for us in the church, I think, as the core team are coming together, you're saying, what should be the priorities of the Lockheed Baptist Church going forward? How should we support what's going on with the seniors ministry and get a platform and guide those who are passionate in, in developing that and want to use that not just to be a social action thing in the community, but to bring people the truth of Jesus and let them make them reminds up. How can we support the children's ministry? Is, is it right to do that? We've put so much money in the last six years. Should we change that? No, families are important. Children don't know basic stuff. Miranda shared a story there from school where a young kid was told and it, it captured her mind and heart that she is a father. We need to be involved in children's ministry. How do we do that? How do we get involved in discipleship? So, so as a church family, as a leadership, we are very mindful of drawing a line in the sand. COVID has happened. Some people have stayed with us, some people have not. Others have joined. How do we do it right? Where is the danger? Work, work. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. God, will you come and bless this? Or, Lord, what should we do? Where are you? How can we partner with you? And, that, and that's where the core team are at. And I'm sure the ministry leaders are at. So I think what we've just read about vanity and about asking the Lord to hear the things and actually asking the Lord to lead us into new things rather than us always come up with great ideas is such an important thing for our church family at this point and other churches I know through our nation. But verse 2a offers us a, char a charge. It describes the life of a workaholic. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. This kind of relentless activity is, I think, a recipe for disaster. And I know that there are some workaholics in here. And, and, and I understand that. But it's also, it could be an indication of idolatry. And bear with me on that. The person described in this verse works themselves to exhaustion. Staying up late, rising early, toiling and toiling and toiling for basic things in life. There's a hint of a starvation of the important things, of the real things. They've substituted the real important things for the wrong things. Their focus is in the wrong place. The word toil here, and, and it may be in your mind, but in my mind, it took me back to what God said to Adam and Eve after the fall. Were they had eaten the fruit, an idea had come into their mind for the evil one. Simply an idea. And they allowed that idea to take root, that ultimately led to a separation between humanity and its creator. Humanity says, I desire to be the author of my own destiny. And in response, in Genesis 3, 17 onwards, God says, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's our fault. <coughs> Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat 
the plants of the field. I, as I was reflecting on that and that word toil and what God says to Adam, I certainly believe that all too often I have uh, the, the bread of anxious toil in my mind, in my life, and in my ministry. And let me try and unpack that quickly. I've justified working in my days off. I've hidden the fact that I'm working in my days off from my leadership, who would be quick to chastise me. I've hidden the fact that I've worked my days off from my wife, but she's no daft. And all that I've been doing, I've been trying to work hard and I've been trying to do things for other people. But really all I've been doing is filling my belly with nervous, worried, fearful work that's affected my health. And this is the, the warning that God gave to Adam. Because you've chosen me, this is the consequences. And even in that toil of being a pastor, I've chosen ministry over, over even the peacefulness of having a Sabbath of the Lord. And this is my great desire in, in the months to come, and I'm trying my not good at it, to have a proper Sabbath. Not the Lord's Day, but a Sabbath day for me. 24 hours. Would I do that? They just sit back and kick my shoes off and do nothing? Maybe. But what I do is I worship in restfulness. I delight in the Lord. I eat well. I switch off. I give ministry back to the Lord because the building up of the church does not depend on me because it's his church. I understand how too often in work you toil because you think you're indispensable. In ministry because you're indispensable. And even in friendships, you think you're indispensable. But we need to be careful how you toil because it's painful and it's a cursed filled with life as God says to Adam. Such is the toil of the workaholic. And I think it's worthless to live a workaholic life. Well, um, I'll come to that. Um, because God grants sleep to those he loves. So it says right at the end of verse 2, God grants sleep to those he loves. Stop your work. Stop your toil. Stop trying to be all things to all people. Rest. I rested. You rest. Work hard through the week. But take time off. God grants sleep to those he loves, to his Jedediah, to his beloved. Every disciple of Jesus Christ a Jedediah. Every believer is beloved in Christ, is chosen in Christ, is loved with an everlasting, never-ending, never-failing love. And God gives us the benefit of sleep and peaceful sleep. Sleep is God's good gift to us. The workaholic may see sleep as a necessary evil, the means to get energy to do more things, but we need to sleep, see sleep as God's gift not an intrusion in your schedules and not waste of time. God bless you, your work. They start working at 12 o'clock, so they always have to leave. So if we recognise sleep as God's good gift, sleep can become an act of faith. You can lie down and sleep in peace because the Lord makes you in safety. He is in control. The 
day I believe, I think this is from an Ian Stackhouse book about Sabbath keeping. The day I think the Jewish mentality starts at night time. So when we go to sleep, and I think that they understand that it begins the day. So when we are at the most vulnerable, when we have switched off, the Lord never slumbers and sleeps. The Lord prepares the dawn for us so that when we enter into it, lots of activity has been happening in the part of God. And He just says to us, go to sleep, rest in me, trust me. Leave all of the things to tomorrow. Bring it to me because your, your Saviour Jesus sits at my right hand side and intercedes on your behalf when you sleep. <coughs> and I'm going to just fire through the last two things very quickly. Children, I'll read that. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward for him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one youth. Blessed are the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate. God's original universal healthcare plan was children. We'll see that again, because we are in a culture where we have a national health service, etc. God's original universal healthcare plan was for us to have children. I think that's what the psalmist is saying. When you grow old and when you're decrepit or old and not decrepit, there's some young people around who like you, who love you, and who care about you enough to do something about it. We see that in the church family. Some people get to the point where they say, I've done this for 50 years. May it stop or may the Lord bring someone youthful with the same vision or a similar vision to take on. And there's this understanding that in a church family we need young people to keep coming through. We need families to be a part of this, to lead it, to pass the baton on. I promise you and promise my wife, I will never be a retired Baptist minister sitting in the pews criticising my pastor in front of me. Just like I know there's Baptist pastors here who don't do that. We let go. We pass the baton to others, to our children, and to our children's children, for what the Lord has called them to. And part of their job is to care for you when you're older, to the best of their ability. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man who fills his cover with them. Now, if you think that picture is idyllic, I understand. If you think it looks a bit different from your experience, I understand. But let's remind ourselves that the way that God gives gifts doesn't always look like the perfect family in adverts. You know, all happy and drawn around the table with a Sunday lunch, 2.2 children, all immaculately dressed. God doesn't give, the scriptures don't give that picture. And I just want to read this out that I wrote about Genesis chapter 11. There are people in the plains of Shinar and they're going to make a name for themselves. They're populous as ants and they're busy as bees and they're going to build a tower to the sky and make a name for themselves. And God frustrates their plan. What is going to be God's counter plan of blessing if it's not as Babel? Well, he picks an idolater from Iraq because that's where all of the Chaldeans is. 
he picks an idolater from Iraq called Terah, and he says, Terah, I'm going to give you a boy, and his name is going to be Abraham, and Abraham will wait to have a child by his own wife until he's extremely advanced in years. And there's no telling the family tensions that would have existed between Abraham and Sarah for much of the marriage life, and through that boy, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And if you and I had been a fly in the wall of their household, we would have said, what an absolute mess is this God's great plan of salvation. This is not the perfect advent of a family of blessing, but God has worked his blessing in spite of Abraham, in spite of Sarah, in spite of their children's childlessness for much of their adult life, and he has blessed all the families of the earth through them. So God fills us with, a, first of all, a blessing through our children. But God also, secondly, gives us an inheritance. And if you look at the early books of Scripture, you will see in the Old Testament the word inherit. Heritage or inheritance comes up a lot. And often it's got something to do with the promised land, but at other times it's got to do with people. And who has got to go in and inhabit the promised land? It was the children of the generation who went in and inhabited the promised land. So children are a heritage and an inheritance that the Lord gives. But children are also a reward from the Lord. Like the inheritance, it's a free gift from the Lord. Children are the gracious blessing of God. But hear me out here from, from some people in this church family. No one deserves to have children. God doesn't give you a child because he sees you as being a wonderful parent. Fertility is not a matter of merit. That also means that God isn't punishing you because you can't have children. Infertility is not a matter of demerit. God gives us as he chooses and fertility and infertility or life experiences where you don't meet your kindred spirit and don't get married and have children are all in his hands. And great is the ministry of those who have never had children to be mothers and sisters and aunties to those in the family who have not got fathers. Great is that ministry. And many of us have been blessed by it. And strangely enough, somehow children, and this is the final thing, are like arrows in a warrior's hands. Arrows of a warrior's means protection and defence, and that's what children can become to the parents. The son goes to the city gate where all matters were um, decided and the disputes were fixed, and they seek justice for the parents because they desire to honour parents. They protect the parents and do what is right for them. And this is what children are meant to do. And I'm going to finish there. Children and pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, they're singing the songs of life and they're reminding themselves of who God has revealed himself to be. They're reminding themselves of who they are and all of the complexities of life in those Psalms and even in Psalm 127. They sing of the emptiness of working without the Lord and the fullness of even a home or a church family that is given God its place and where children and where people honour one another. A day is coming when Jesus will return, our work will be over. 
God will give our families um, to be united in his kingdom for all eternity. And what will matter on that great day is that we find everything in Christ. Our work, our homes should seek the Saviour. Because empty labour is not what we are called to. Emptiness is not what we are called to. Fullness in Christ, in our homes, in our work, in our church family, where we see God will lead us and we are sinners. Shall we pray? I've said much more than Father, in your mercy, in all I give to you. Thank you, your word is rich, it feeds us. May we be aligned with your word. Would you guide us and make us into the character of Jesus through your word? Lord, we bring you our laments if we have them about our children. Lord, would you give us prayers that we would see our children in the fullness of life. Forgive us, Lord, if our ministry and our work has been done mostly without you. It is not our heart's desire. We desire, Lord, to see you crowned and be in charge of all things. Thank you that you've called us to part with you. You've chosen us, you've appointed us to be a fruit, fruit that will last, and that we didn't choose you. So be glorified in our church family. Be glorified in our marriages. Be glorified with our children. Be glorified in our ministry and lead us in life everlasting. In the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.